0: Okay, uh, good morning everyone, Um, welcome to the fourth day of the New Austrian School of Economics in Munich. Uh, This morning uh, Professor Feketa will be continuing a bit about yesterday's topic no no it's okay we'll be moving on to time preference today and in the afternoon it will be uh, me lecturing on the basis so that's a change a change from the schedule that was meant to be given uh, tomorrow afternoon but will be given uh, today instead and tomorrow afternoon's lecture will be
1: Sorry, today's afternoon lecture that was meant to be, will be tomorrow. Uh, so, over to Professor.
0: Thank you, Sandeep. Uh, good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, the uh, topic is Fear of Interest. We already said a few words about that in the first lecture. Now we go a little bit deeper. The theory of interest is one of the chapters in economics which is, shall we say, least settled. Far more controversy is prevailing in this theory than any other part of economics, which is quite something to say because. (laughs) economics is very controversial as it is, but especially the theory of interest. There are (coughs) several competing theories. I'm not going to uh, review them here. I mentioned just two, which are important from our point of view. One is the time preference theory of interest and the other is the productivity theory of interest the time preference theory as the name suggests tries to explain the phenomenon of interest in terms of an innate uh, property which we all have which is that we prefer Something that is available today to the very same thing available later in time. Put it in a different way, you could say there is always a discount on future goods as opposed to present goods. and the productivity theory of interest explains or tries to explain the phenomenon of interest in terms of the productivity of methods which human beings apply to production. For example, As we all know, it's possible to do fishing with your bare hands. You just go to the uh, creek and try to catch a fish. And if you're lucky, within an hour or two, you will catch one. But you can improve on this method of fishing with your bare hands if you invent a hook. sinker and then you are fishing with a bait and that could increase your productivity a great deal, and it does and because of this increase in productivity you could say that saving, because let's be clear about this there's always saving involved in improving productivity. For instance, the fisherman could also improve productivity by applying a net, a fishing net, but it would take time for him to create a net, during which time he won't be able to do the fishing. So, in other words, he would have to save enough fish to keep him going while he's making his net. And therefore, productivity can be improved only if somebody is doing some saving somewhere along the line. Now, the problem of interest is ancient. It goes back to Aristotle and beyond. and As I say, there have been lots of controversies, lots of competing theories. And even recently, the controversy between these two schools which we are specifically looking at, the Time Preference School and the Productivity School of Interest, were almost like religious wars, you know. uh, It's not just calling names, member of one camp calling names of members of the other and vice versa, but uh, almost violent clash of ideas, which is really remarkable. that after the religious wars of the reformation and its uh, aftermath uh, we could still have such fervent expressions of faith or beliefs and consequently clashes so uh, The problem is very ancient, and the solution was very elusive. Uh, There is, until very recent times, there is no consensus among economists just what is the main cause of interest, what is causing interest, why is interest present. And uh, the outcome which I am suggesting is in a way surprising because it's neither or, but it's synthesis. It's not like thesis antithesis, but it's synthesis. You take both Theories, both the time preference theory and the productivity theory, and look for a synthesis. And the synthesis you can find thanks to Carl Menger's uh, idea of marketability, opsatzphic, and <clears throat> what we derive from it, or he derived from it. There's no monolithic price, but there is always a (coughs) pair of prices, the lower bid price and the higher ask price. And exactly the same idea applies to the theory of interest because there will be not one rate of interest, but two. There will be a floor and a ceiling of the range within which the interest could vary. Now why did it take so long to come to this idea which uh, is like a very obvious idea that the same way we solve the problem of price formation by uh, following Menger's idea bit price and ask price why did it take so long for the theory of interest to use exactly the same methodology and come up with exactly the same answer well I uh, I um, my guess is I guess as good as anybody else's but I would suggest that the big stumbling block was the uh, uh, the prohibition or the interdiction against taking and paying interest by both secular and canonical law. And that goes back to Aristotle. It's not particularly Christian, it's not not particularly (coughs) uh, modern, something which developed in the modern age. It goes back to Aristotle, who made it an axiom, He said that money does not beget money. And by money he meant gold, or silver, or something inanimate, like uh, metals. So he would draw a line between Living things like animals, cattle, sheep, etc, on the one hand and on the other side would lie inanimate objects like metals, gold, silver, copper, etc. So while in the first group, these beings could, could multiply, and there is a yield which you could improve with good tending, various methods. But there is no such thing as a yield for an inanimate object. Take gold. (coughs) Money does not beget money. So this was taken as an axiom and it survived through all these centuries and the Christian Church, uh, at that time there was only the Catholic Church, Rome, and uh, the uh, uh, deepest thinker of the Catholic Church was the 13th century, St. Thomas of Aquinas. He produced a a very substantial study, Summa Theologiae was the title. In this he reviewed the whole spectrum of theology paying very meticulous interest, uh, uh, very meticulous attention to the uh, question of interest. Is interest justified? And if it is, to what extent? Well, he came, (laughs) he was not terribly original. He almost verbatim lifted Aristotle's ideas and implanted Drestitok (coughs) in Uh, with uh, religious uh, language and uh, presented it as the dogma of the church. And it was uncompromising. Interest is a sin. To take interest or even pay it is a sin. Whatever, doesn't matter how small the amount. Any interest taking is usury, and it is a cardinal sin. And the Church has to struggle against it and stamp it out. And uh, needless to say, this was a mistake. Well, the mistake, original mistake, goes back to Aristotle, but it is quite unfortunate that the Church took this whole theory lock, stock, and barrel, and for hundreds of years afterwards it was the official dogma. So it, means, it didn't mean, of course, that there was no lending and borrowing and there was no interest payments involved. Of course there was, but the result was just the opposite of what these church fathers hoped that it would be. They uh, were hoping that interest will at least be reduced and the poor can benefit by it. Because if they have to uh, borrow money to feed themselves and their children and their family, then at least they would be paying less interest. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the exact opposite happened. Interest did survive, of course, and rather than getting lower, it got higher. Well, of course, because there was a risk involved. If you were going to lend money, you had to charge a higher rate of interest to cover the risk that you might be caught. Uh, uh, Because it's not just canonical authorities which were tracking you down, but also the secular, because secular law motivated by canon law also ruled out interest, paying and taking and paying. It was against secular law, and of course the secular law had ways and means to punish those who were caught on the wrong side. So this is one of the object lessons, that you legislate something and the result is just the opposite of what you had hoped that you would achieve. And it took hundreds of years before the church came to see the light. And in, a, in between there was reformation, there was John Calvin who challenged the church doctrine, the church dogma, took quite a bit of courage, what he did, and other uh, reformers generally speaking reformation opened up, first of all it opened up the dialogue and then it made the idea of lending and borrowing and taking in a moderate interest acceptable and society as a whole did accept it little by little so ultimately the uh, Roman Catholic Church also had to yield and they uh... announced I think this was 18th century I, don't have the exact date, when they announced that the, uh, very quietly, it was not an official announcement Mm -hmm. from now on you can lend and borrow and charge interest, nothing like that. It was, the word was passed on very quietly to the father confessors that they should not disturb the penance Penance? Penance. Penitent. penitence. These are the people who are going to confession. If they confess that they have sinned against the usury laws, then the father confessor should not disturb them in the sense that uh, would quietly explain that the church no longer holds this as a cardinal sin and therefore they are all right as long as they take care that the amount of interest is modest, moderate. Now, that's church history, but for for us, the important message is that there was no way to have a bond market for hundreds of years, and there could have been. If this recognition came earlier, Or if St. Thomas of Aquinas did not just lift this dogma from Aristotle and implant it right at the center of Catholic or, or, or church teaching, Christian teaching, then there would have been a bond market much, much earlier. And if there had been a bond market, then people would have discovered the seesaw, which I already mentioned, which mm-hmm. is the fact that the rate of interest and the bond price move always opposite. And an extreme low for the bond price corresponds extreme high for the rate of interest and vice versa. So, these things were delayed, and as a result of this, delay. The questions weren't studied, the problems weren't studied, and the uh, economists who were thinking about it, they could not go very far. So there was a lag, a, a a lag of hundreds of years of lag before it was discovered that the same method- methodology could be applied to uh, theory of interest, what they had already developed for the uh, theory of price. And uh, that's how I uh, would explain why it was so late in the day when of interest came to study these problems with the earnestness it deserved, the problem deserved. These are very important problems as you know because uh, human welfare depends a very great extent on, on this because if there's a bond market then you can finance your not only your production effort with borrowed funds as any large scale economic activity will take large sums of money which an individual could not command it would have to be raised in the loan market and after you have raised them you can expand the scale of your production and that could. mean much more productive methods and mass production is always for the benefit of the, the poor, especially. The wealthy people could afford to pay very, very high prices for luxury goods. That was never a real problem. The real problem was to feed uh, the lower classes of people, the working people, and also the, uh, uh, to have, make uh, the, uh, their life easier by introducing l- labor-saving devices and uh, simple conveniences which, without large-scale production, wouldn't be possible. So this is what happened, but the delay, of course, was uh, unfortunate, but eventually we have reached the point that the large-scale production was available and (coughs) productivity uh, grew both productivity of capital and productivity of labor and everybody benefited by it. But the controversy was still there. Was the time preference the important factor or the productivity of capital the important factor in bringing this result about. So let's say a few words uh, about the uh, time preference theory. Of course the major exponent of this theory is Ludwig von Mises and uh, he unfortunately was very dogmatic about that, very, very uncompromising and he just Even to the extent of being intolerant, (coughs) Um, because he he considered this a dogma without exceptions. Well, I already had a few words to say on this, but I think I would uh, repeat this. He used the word apodictic, the time preference is apodictic. It's a Greek word which. literally means that it does not tolerate exceptions. It's just no exception to the dogma period. And then, of course, this was challenged because people came up with counterexamples. One uh, very interesting counterexample is the ice in summer, ice in winter example. If you have Ice in summer, that's very valuable. You see? And if you have ice in winter, that's (laughs) not particularly valuable. Now, let's assume that it's winter time and uh, you have ice in the winter, and then you ask, okay what kind of discount should we apply to the value of ice in winter to get the value of ice in summer and then to your surprise you'll find that there is no discount whatsoever there's a big premium because in the summertime ice is very valuable whereas in the wintertime ice has no value whatsoever in fact it's a negative value in the sense that you are trying to escape from ice and want to keep yourself warm in the winter, so they considered this as a valid counterexample. Well, it's not a valid counter counterexample. Could I ask you if you have an, op- an opinion why not why it is not a valid counterexample? Ice in winter, ice in summer. Yeah.
1: Uh, Alex. Yeah. Well, I would say that ice in uh, the winter is an entirely different good. that's
0: that's the answer. Very good. I let you finish your sentence because I interrupted. But that's the correct answer.
1: Oh no. uh, um, That's yeah.
0: Okay. So we are talking about two different goods. They look identical right? Ice is ice, whether it's winter or something. but for <coughs> economic purposes they are two entirely different goods. So you are comparing apples and oranges and that's why this example is not a good counterexample. Now, Mises all, uh, talked about apple today and apple a year from now, or apple 10 years from now, or even 100 years from now, and that was his standard example. And I think I did come up with an example pointing out that this is not apodictic either. I mean, it it could be a very good average that, on average, this is really true that 99% of the time, uh, an apple. A year from now is worth less Mm -hmm. than an apple right now today. But I did mention the reason why there is an exception, and this would defeat the argument that this is apodictic. Would would somebody be willing to repeat my argument why this why there is exception to this? An apple. A year from now, may not be worth the same as an apple today. Alex.
1: Uh, Was it the example of the apple orchard? Um, We have an apple orchard. Um, It's situated uh, uh, hundreds of miles away from any other uh, orchard, so it has some degree of market power. Um, There's a uh, a guy, he's um, farming all these apples. uh, right after the harvest, uh, so he's collected all of his apples after a bountiful harvest, and then there's a landslide, and it destroys his entire orchard. So it's basically his structure of production. Um, so um, in this situation, um, he then realizes after even though he's harvested all the apples, realizes ah no, but it, I, I I have a lot of apples now, but I still would like them uh, apples for next year or an apple next year. And so this example sort of disproves that um, you would uh, prefer having <coughs> something sooner rather than later because your means of producing them for the next year is now gone. Um, yeah,
0: that's, that's exactly right. Thank you very much. You did very well. You explained it very well, and I hope everybody uh, gets the point.
1: Yes? Is it okay if I offer a reason for why I'm not convinced by this example?
0: You too. Is it all right if (laughs) Alex (laughs) offers a reason why he's not convinced by it? Oh, absolutely, I welcome this. (laughs) Um, Well, uh, my initial
1: uh, in in setting up this thought experiment, uh, my initial thought was that this um, apple farmer is an entrepreneur who's growing apples not just so he can consume them all for himself, but since he's clearly, uh, his objective is to sell the apples. So um, the fact that his um, structure, it's not a good example in the sense that he doesn't prefer having apples.